0: this week's been crazy we released our one of our bigger products at full screen yesterday I yeah I saw when, what day is today? Thursday.
1: I saw that you yeah today is Thursday I saw that you released uh, full screen the full screen network uh, released the Facebook uploader or something
0: yeah so we've been working directly with Facebook for a while on this thing and basically our goal is to allow f- people in the full screen network to upload their video once And then distribute to multiple platforms, including YouTube and Facebook and many other platforms in the future to kind of give it like a a HootSuite for video type feel. Okay. So yesterday we announced it finally, and it should be available to all full screen partners within the next few weeks. So that's been exciting, but crazy busy.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. So yeah, that's awesome. We got a lot of cool news and everything, and we should welcome you guys to the seventh episode of the we geeks podcast crazy uh but awesome all the same this one just like all the other sponsored by squarespace howard you got a lot of good things to say about squarespace
0: if you guys checked out the we geeks podcast.com website which i would assume you have considering that's where we host our our podcast but then again i have had a lot of people subscribe on itunes lately we've been getting some decent listens on itunes and soundcloud so but if you have gone to the WeGeeksPodcast.com website, that was created completely using Squarespace and it was super simple. I never really liked those, you know, drag and drop websites yep. and all the templates and stuff like that. But Squarespace really does make it very simple. They have very nice mobile friendly templates, which is very important considering a lot of traffic is driven on mobile. Yeah. And they have. Uh, what else do they have? It's eight bucks a month.
1: Yeah. And if you buy a whole
0: year, you get a free domain name. And if you want to save 10%, you can use the coupon code WEGEEKS at checkout.
1: Yeah. So Squarespace, lots of great stuff. I've used them for a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of times those sort of uh, drag and dropy type situations aren't ideal or far less than ideal. Uh, But Squarespace is pretty kick butt. And yeah, for eight bucks a month, what are you waiting for? Uh, And also, no, go ahead.
0: Yeah, and, and last thing before we get on to actual news, uh, Patreon. We have a $25 patron, Valdez. I, I probably pronounce his name wrong every single week. It's either Valdis or Valdis, or I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong, which I probably am. But <laughs> he's our first $25 patron, and you guys can support our show at patreon.com slash wegeeks. And make sure to check out Valdez mm-hmm. at Camus. One two three two. That's K-A-M-I-S. One two three two dot com. That's
1: right. So uh we got a lot of interesting news. I'm just distracted here. I'm playing with this new Periscope thing while I'm trying to <laughs> You're live, aren't right you? I, I am and oh I'm just looking here. It looks like uh I'm figuring this out on the fly and it looks like what I'm doing when I tilt my phone it actually is displaying it flipped the wrong way on screen of course is is is. that is that your oh hold on it's my feedback that's going back to my headphones it's totally messing me up on my end but yeah periscope (laughs) and meerkat we're gonna get to that a little bit later on um but for now i probably should just rotate my phone so at least it's not awful uh
0: here we go i don't know what he's saying he moved away from his mic yeah he's trying out periscope but we'll get we'll get into that later on but basically this week two apps Or I should say, today, Periscope came out, and then Meerkat's kind of been out for a while, Mm -hmm. but I think Nathaniel's back. So we'll touch on that a little bit later on, and I'm actually going to go live. Not that this makes any sense to anyone listening to this podcast, because it's gone out after this has already happened. But I'm going to try out Periscope live on the podcast, so if somehow you're a time traveler Mm -hmm. and you go back one day to uh march 26th you can actually watch me record this podcast or at least a part of the podcast live so pop in your time machine and i'll see you in a few seconds
1: yeah so there's it's just we're gonna have a little bit of mess here at the beginning of the podcast um but hey it's all in the name of live recording and when you haven't done any pre-production we literally i downloaded uh periscope what five minutes before we jumped on and started recording (laughs) and we just said let's just try it out and see what's going on so that's where we are but i guess uh with all that behind us Uh, A few interesting news articles uh, and some great questions we got this week. Um, First and foremost, we should touch on uh, Paul C. Buff died this week. Uh, Paul C. Buff created a series of low-priced off-camera strobe flashes called Alien Bees. They actually have a number of other uh, relatively budget-friendly strobes uh, for photographers and ran a, a lighting company called Paul C. Buff. Uh, now one of the fantastic things about uh, Buffs lights were the price point and it was a price point that was really low and it allowed a lot of sort of beginning and newer photographers to break into the off-camera lighting industry whether or not you wanted to light you know, inside or even take the lights outside. It was much more affordable than a lot of the higher end, um, even a company like Chrome, which has a lot of now competitively priced strobes but certainly much less expensive than a company like Profoto. And allowed a lot of these new photographers to buy the studio lighting for a fraction of the cost and still get very professional results. And the funny thing is, these sort of, you know, quote-unquote lower-end lights, the alien bees, there's still a bunch of uh, professional, very high-end photographers that I know of who still use them uh, to this day. Uh, And you can check out the... Uh, the story and all of the affordable lights and, of course, the lighting kits and batteries and all kinds of stuff that they offer over at PalsyBuff.com. Definitely a sad loss uh, for the photographic community. Uh, and like I said, he was 78 years old. He passed away earlier this week. Um, and just fantastic stuff. I mean in a lot of ways changed Um the way that that part of the industry worked, as far as buying and selling these lights, uh, price, cost, uh, allowing, like I said, a lot of these newer photographers, photographers who aren't making you know ten, twelve thousand dollars a day, to really buy their way in. Um, to this field and, and and compete when it comes to this stuff and you know I mean a, a, a strobe is a, a light head that puts out a big boom flash of light uh, it's not really much more than that um, and of course there were downsides but for the price um, they were really fantastic little lights um, and he's done a lot of great stuff so yeah definitely something at least to note uh, and I wanted to kind of lead off the show with that this week um, just sort of mentioning that.
0: Yeah, I don't have much to add to that because kind of like last week, when it comes to photographers, I have absolutely no idea. I, I didn't hear about Paul C. Buff until actually this week when he passed away. It, it's obviously very sad when someone in the industry passes away. Yeah. But it is kind of nice that he was kind of a pioneer or he tried to make sure that his kits were affordable for mm. anyone who's kind of trying to get into the industry or is in the industry. We don't very see We don't see that very often. Yeah. So it's nice to see that he was behind that, and it is a sad loss when someone does pass away.
1: Yeah, so just kind of a shame. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that. And also, there was something interesting um, that I saw earlier this week. I think it was lynda.com, actually, that posted it on their YouTube channel. And I'll have a link uh, to this episode uh, on my tutvid blog tutvid.com slash wegeeks slash episode 7 it would be uh, you can go and check this out check out all the information all the stories we talk about uh, James White who's this illustrator created this really cool laser horse it's like this 80s inspired mm. yep. maybe early 90s I don't know um, inspired illustration there's this video and he's talking about how he did it and and interestingly enough a lot of sort of the thought that went into, you know, why he did what he did and, and the choices he's making. Like I, I, you know, did this gradient that went from pink to red and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's talking about how he's, you know, drawing this horse. And the, it's, it's a really cool illustration uh, for starters. Um, and just kind of hearing some of his creative behind the scenes and what's going on uh, with his thought process is really kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I did see this not too long ago, and this was for Photoshop's 25th anniversary, that's the word, and um, James White has fantastic stuff. If you haven't checked out his stuff, he does a lot of retro mm-hmm. type of illustration, yeah. and I actually saw him design live, I believe it was at Russell Brown's event in Boulder two years ago, I believe, okay. and... He was absolutely fantastic, but watching this video and kind of watching him break down how he designed things and why he designed this way or why he picked this or that, it's really interesting to get in someone's head, and there's a lot of videos out there of different artists and different designers who really go into depth on how they got to a certain point, mm-hmm. and I think that's the really interesting thing Yeah, when people start breaking that stuff down, because, you know, it, it's nice... Looking at an image and saying, "Oh, you know, it's the colors are great and this, that, and the other thing," but there's a lot of stories that goes on. It sounds crazy that someone like can have a whole brainstorm session about why he chose purple and pink. Yeah, but there's a lot of meaning behind things. Maybe it makes it a little bit warmer or cooler, or it fits the retro. Air well, yeah, and there's, like I mean, there's just
1: a lot, of, there's a lot of little things that you sort of don't think about. And, you know, I, like he's talking about in this, in this video, and I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about the video, but he's talking about when he's drawing the mane of the horse. Um, and he sort of has this very geometric pattern all over the horse, very wireframe looking um, with all these different gradients and things going in all different directions. But when it comes time to do the mane of the horse, he talks about... Not only that he's not doing the same geometric wireframe pattern for the mane of the horse, but kind of why. And, you know, he really wants the mane to flow. And just by its very nature, the, these geometric shapes, with these very hard edges and corners, they're very structured looking and very hard-edged and sharp. And obviously, I mean, you really wouldn't want that for uh, the mane of a horse. It's a flowing mane, right? So you want it to be flowing and elegant and long and, and things like that. So, yeah, just little stuff like that that's very interesting. Um,
0: yeah. Another thing that's kind of interesting is the fact that he used Photoshop for this, which is, you know, it's mostly a vector, uh, very hard lines, yeah. very a lot of shapes. I think it was because it was for Photoshop's 25th mm-hmm. anniversary. I think knowing James, I don't know him personally, but knowing his work, he probably would have used Illustrator otherwise. But it's it is kind of nice to see these kind of designs and illustrations also be done in Photoshop because traditionally these sorts of things are done in Illustrator because it's known as a vector application. But what a lot of people don't I guess, no. maybe they do know, but they don't really explore it enough, is Photoshop can do a lot of the same things Illustrator can, and you can design to an extent in vector in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that everything that James did in this video and for that design was completely vector, and you can enlarge it as big as you want, yeah, with a few exceptions. Just
1: about. I mean, it's definitely the kind of illustration that you look at, yeah, like you said, you look at it and you're immediately going to be like, whoa, this definitely looks like more of a Illustrator-style piece. Um, but there are areas where he goes and he brushes and sort of creates fake lighting and things like that. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely, I mean, the vast majority of it does look like. Um, you know, it could have really been done in Photoshop, and even when it comes to the shading, there's still sort of vectory ways you can use the pen tool. Um, and and kind of shade that way. But on to something a little bit more hair raising, and actually, <clears throat> terribly ironic that this article came out this uh-huh. week. I believe this article actually came out before this, the news of the aircraft crash. In southern France, and certainly our well wishes go out to the the entire uh, family and cast of everybody who is involved with the crew and the passengers lost in that crash. Um, sounds like a horrible story with lots of crazy news uh, about it coming out now as far as the co-pilot maybe intentionally taking the plane into the ground. Uh, we don't really know. Um, But And shockingly, uh, at least one of the two American passengers was a a Drexel graduate in Drexel's college here in Philadelphia. Um, So kind of a weird, weirdly bizarre uh, local connection as well. But anyway, uh, there's a story here, a DSLR that caused an airliner to plummet uh, about 4,000 feet. Uh, This was back in February of 2014. Uh, A UK pilot knocked his Nikon DSLR off its resting place while adjusting his seat and then somehow managed to get it wedged between the seat and the throttle joist Stick, you know, shoved it forward. And with an airplane, when you push the stick forward, at least with most aircraft, I guess, it causes the plane to sort of uh, do a little nosedive action. And for 27 seconds, the plane entered a nosedive uh, and the airliner plunged 4,400 feet. Uh, there were a reported 33 injuries uh, among the crew and passengers in this Airbus A330, uh, which was carrying, by the way, about 200 people at the time of this incident. Uh, so. I'm getting
0: terrified just listening to this story. I didn't hear about it until today, but I'm surprised they didn't. Uh, and you know, blame people turn not turning off their phones in the uh, in the right. cabin. But that's that's crazy. I don't do pilots often carry DSLRs in the cockpit.
1: I don't know. See, I was looking <laughs> into this a little bit, and there is a Pilots of Instagram Instagram channel. Um, however. This article that's talking about uh, this DSLR causing this airliner to plummet 4,000 plus feet does say that typically uh, American and United Kingdom pilots are prohibited from taking electronic devices into the cockpit and using them to photograph and and do things like that that would distract you from flying the metal bird that you're flying. so again, I'm gonna to try to find this pilot's of Instagram Instagram channel and post a link for it over in uh, the blog article portion of this. Um, but yeah, definitely if you're you know listening, uh, see if you can find it and check it out. I mean, I'm sure there's amazing photos you can get up there. Um, but you know, it's sort of like
0: not it may not be worth the risk, right?
1: Not while I'm in the airplane, at least.
0: If you want to do it, if you're the only one on the plane, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, Harrison Ford, almost well did crash his plane. By all means, do it. But when you have two hundred people yeah. on your plane, just keep all that stuff out of the mm-hmm. co- cockpit, and you know, yeah, let us arrive safely.
1: I would tend to agree with you when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to that. I hate
0: flying, but so just thinking of this thing, right? You're you're me you're
1: out. in a metal tube, forty thousand feet off the ground. What's scary about that? Yeah, really. Yeah. So moving on from that, uh, we have Canon uh, introduced a very small four K camera. Uh, over at uh, like this press event in China, uh, a little before, uh, there's an NAB is a, a big show that happens out in Las Vegas. Uh, and it's happening in April, um, and Canon released uh, this little 4K camera. It's about the size of a DSLR camera it's um, ahead I'm of the at it show. Right now, yeah, it's crazy. and it looks it looks pretty remarkable. Uh, it's got a one-inch CMOS sensor, 10x optical zoom, uh, essentially a 24 to 240 millimeter. Uh, lens, if we're speaking in thirty-five millimeter terms, f two eight f five six lens, uh, fifty-eight millimeter filter, built-in Wi Fi, an external viewfinder. Um, it's definitely um, an interesting four K uh, camera, just because it is so small. Um, and I believe it was the Petapixel article that I was looking at that made a specific reference to this potentially being Canon sort of stepping into the 4K drone marketplace with a much lighter 4K camera. Therefore, you're not oh. spending additional thousands of dollars on your drone to lift a massive 4K camera into the sky. Instead, you have a smaller camera. I wasn't able to find a price point on the camera. Um, maybe if I find one, I will put it in the, in the article for this. Uh, but yeah, definitely super cool to see. A smaller 4K camera, uh, hopefully more affordable 4K uh, cameras coming to the market, allowing more and more people to create 4K footage, since especially, I mean, it's starting to look like 4K footage um, will sort of be the way of the future when it comes to uh, digital video resolution.
0: Yeah, I sure hope so, because I've been looking for a decent 4K camera, because I have... Uh, I'm now recording my Photoshop and Affinity Photo tutorials in 4K, mm. so I'm doing my intros and outros with me on screen, and I'm still recording with my Canon 6D, right. which records full HD, but it's still only 1920 by 1080 so I had to do it against a green screen, and then cut me out, and then kind of enlarge me a little bit, so I, you know, I lose a little bit of quality, yeah. but I would love a little 4K camera so I can just shoot my intros, shoot my outros, maybe some vacation footage, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't want to spend several thousand dollars right. just to record a little bit of footage here and there. So hopefully in the future, maybe in the near future, we start to see these prices go down a little bit. I mean, we now have some mobile phones like the Samsung phones are now recording 4K footage, which is crazy. It's not the greatest, but it still records Yeah, 4K. I was
1: going to say, I mean, remember GoPro a while ago had 4K capability right. but it was like what 15 frames per second or something so it's yeah, like you know it's 4k I mean, at a cost right i mean is it even 4k at that point you know what i mean like part of the beauty of 4k is that super huge resolution that crisp sharp edge like i want 4k on a quality uh, sensor you know, so you can get yep. that really, really crisp. You know, the, the, those rich colors and everything that you see. You know, when you see like the the Samsung OLED OLED whatever TVs, where they have these four K images being displayed, and you're looking at it, and it's just you know falling out of the screen into your lap almost, and it's so you know hyper realistic almost. Um, yeah, so. and
0: that makes me wonder what the quality of this camera is because if you remember mm-hmm. a while ago, Canon came out with the Canon EOS M, I believe, which is what their first mirrorless camera. And yeah. it was kind of in the same time that mirrorless cameras were first coming into the market. And it was one of those things that the first mirrorless camera that they came out with was absolutely terrible. All the reviews were terrible. Even their second version wasn't that great. So I'm hoping that they're not, not just releasing this 4K tiny little camera at a cost, like I said before, I hope they actually spent a lot of time and effort into making sure the sensor will result in you know high quality images and video.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the upshot is though, I mean, the pilot could take it right into the cockpit with him and shoot some four K footage right through the right through the stinking window. Um, be...
0: Record four K footage while he's dropping four K.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. There you go. Uh, sort of four <laughs> K squared. So I guess Howard. I know. mean, the next uh, topic here is something that we we actually have batted. The idea of talking about this around for the past couple of weeks um, since Meerkat came out, what? It, it feels like it was only a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah, it's not been, it hasn't been very long. Yeah. And um, actually, this morning, so Meerkat's been around for uh, probably a few weeks. I've been hearing about it. I've been seeing yeah. a lot of live tweets on Twitter, mm-hmm. which I'll get to that in a second. It's bothering me a little bit. But this morning, actually, Twitter introduced Periscope. We've been hearing about it for a little bit, but we haven't actually seen it go live. Some people have been using it, but uh, I haven't until actually right now. I'm actually recording.
1: Are you broad? Are you broadcasting my- though? Record- not yet. I'm, recording. Not I'm isn't the key. in the thing right now. Recording isn't the key with something like Periscope or Meerkat. Just to give a quick rundown for those of you who might be listening but not watching. Um Periscope and Meerkat are both live broadcasting apps. Now Meerkat hit the market first um, and was pretty popular. However, Twitter went and sort of limited Meerkat's access to the Twitter social graph, um, which basically, long story short, makes it more difficult for you to link your Twitter account to this live broadcasting app. I think, personally, part of the reason that happened was because Twitter, back in January, had bought this company called Periscope which was going to be their own version of this live broadcasting tweeting uh, company thing. Uh, and Periscope is what launched today. And uh,
0: and I am pressing start broadcast right now. How do I flip my uh, tap I think. to flip? Yeah. Oh, okay. oh and, and there's a tweet. All right, so I have published. My broadcast is live. I'm testing this out for the very first time. And me too. On... Oh look! I have a, oh seven people have just joined me. Seven followers. So if you're watching this now on Periscope, oh I got a heart. There's like a whole hearts right. Floating around. Yeah, those are all your, I your am, hearts. Oh, it says and who joins? Yeah, ten people, eleven people. This is kind of crazy. Yeah. So Nathaniel and I. Oh, Jose says hi. Hello, Jose. We are recording our We Geeks podcast for tomorrow, episode number seven. Yep. And I'm testing Periscope for the very first time, and it's really interesting. I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen. An app like this, or at least a decent app like this, previously, yeah, it is taken until now.
1: It is kind of crazy to think about it that way, um, because it when you look at it, it seems like it makes a lot of sense and it's so simple and easy to use. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's it's super cool, free to use, and
0: completely free, and if people are watching now and wondering why I'm so silent, we're actually recording our podcast, and Nathaniel's talking. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we'll figure out how to sync this so you guys can both watch both of us at the same time. But one thing that kind of annoyed me about Meerkat, and maybe it's the same thing about Periscope. Oh, there's hearts all over the place. This is crazy. Um is that I was seeing people use Twitter basically as a chat room mm-hmm. for Meerkat. So people were like respo- like typing one word answers or hello or how are you doing on Twitter. Right. Which is, that's not what you should be using Twitter for. Right. It drove me absolutely insane. And if you're broadcasting live, then you should be talking to people. Right. And it is and interesting. I see, I see there's like, yeah, there's, there's comments and people are talking to yeah. me. I don't even know how to see this yeah again no i'm testing either. this for the I, very first time and i'm probably going to end this in a second um someone just said meerkat quality is better i haven't tested meerkat so i'm not 100 percent sure mm. but what i have noticed with both of these apps is that still you're broadcasting from a mobile phone so the quality isn't going to be that great yeah the front facing cameras are usually terrible yeah so hopefully in the future we'll have better quality but
1: well I'm, there, I'm, there's so much I'm, potential I'm, with I mean, just to interrupt you for a second. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Also, it's very network dependent. You know. Um, oh, I'm sure. So yeah. you know, it's going to depend on your network and the recipient's network. But yeah, no, go ahead.
0: What, yeah, but what's really cool <clears throat> about these sorts of apps, again, other than the fact that I'm surprised they we haven't seen them until now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know it's a it's a 720p camera, um, and it's the compression, but is there so much potential to use these things in the field? Like you were saying that today with that explosion in New York is reporters and just random people grabbed their phone, turned on Periscope or Meerkat ran into the, to the streets, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if they should have been doing that, but we were able to watch this thing unfold in real time. And I think we're going to start seeing apps like this continue, you know, reporters are going to grab it and start reporting. You don't have to rely on a camera crew anymore. And what I'm interested to see is if, um, if, what's it called, if astronauts on the International Space Station or something start mm-hmm. utilizing this so we can actually watch them kind of vlog in real time as they're up there floating in space, which yeah. I think would be absolutely crazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it's it is pretty cool. And I guess, the, yeah, this explosion and this fire in New York is going to be uh, maybe famous for the first real, uh, like, live broadcasted news event, at least through Periscope. I know, yeah, Meerkat has been here for, uh, for several weeks,
0: Someone just someone just said it will change the adult industry.
1: Yeah, I mean they they they're probably correct (laughs) about that. There you go. So I'm gonna
0: I'm gonna actually end my Periscope stream. How do I do this? Uh, I think if you swipe down from the top. top, Yeah. Bye bye. (laughs) Stop broadcast. Okay.
1: Yeah, but it it was it was funny because I saw an article on The Verge uh, about this explosion in New York City, but. It it was very uh, interesting because they said, "Hey, I saw this thing being tweeted about," and then boom, next thing I know, there's a link to this Periscope where I can go and watch it. Um, and, and it was funny reading it because that's exactly what happened to me. I saw these tweets, and then somebody put up a link from some reporter, or somebody. It was somebody on a rooftop, um, and it was just this rooftop essentially across the street from the fire. And you saw all the fire trucks, and they're you know hosing this this fire down, and it's just you know there's like. I don't know, just a lot of fire and flames and and all of that kind of thing. And definitely very interesting. Now, one thing uh, that we should point out about this, uh, beside all of the uh, all of the industry changes and things that it may uh, change around everything around the web, right, is um, Periscope. And, you know, we heard the Meerkat, allegedly Meerkat quality is better than Periscope's quality. I don't know. Again, I haven't tried Meerkat out either. Although I have watched some Meerkat live broadcasts and the quality isn't, you know, stunning either. Uh, But anyway, Periscope allows you to save your live broadcast after the fact, which at least as of right now, Meerkat does not allow you to do. So if you're interested in saving your broadcast, um, maybe that's something you would want to consider. Um, I don't know if you upload your broadcast, where it gets stored. I don't know if there's something Twitter is taking on and saying, yep, we're going to store these huge broadcasts. Um, but I know one complaint that I have heard about Meerkat is people will go into one of these timelines where somebody's used a bunch of Meerkat, and uh, they basically uh, are, are very disappointed that it's a bunch of dead links because you click on a Meerkat broadcast, that's over, and it just basically goes, ah, you're too late, too bad.
0: One thing that was kind of interesting, I was trying to pay attention to what was going on on the screen, but I didn't catch all of it. I saw a bunch of hearts floating and a bunch of comments kind of appearing, disappearing. But one thing that someone... I guess all my viewers were not from Twitter. Somebody in there said that they found me from the nearby section and they mentioned the city I lived in. So they probably live potentially in my neighborhood and were watching this thing. Um, So I guess... I don't know if Meerkat has that feature, but Periscope, it looks like you can view people's streams that are in your area, which is... Kind of interesting, but also kind of creepy. But I suppose you can probably turn that feature off.
1: Yeah, there is there. I did notice there was a location setting, and you can set it right. on or off um, to kind of give a more exact location or not. Uh, but that is kind of cool, though. I mean, in a in a sense, because I mean, you flipped it on, and you immediately had you know a dozen people, boom, like that. Um, and if you know somebody who is kind of a neighbor, um, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I do know it's one of the editors' choice apps in the App Store, so I'm sure millions and millions of the, uh, copies of the app are being downloaded today by iPhone users all over the place place um, but yeah definitely a really really cool um, little tool. Uh, for live broadcasting um, because it, you know, I mean, you, you had Google Plus uh, or you have Google Plus Hangouts so that you can, you know, live broadcast through that and things like that. But this is just so simple and immediately goes out across social networks. Um, I posted a link to this on Facebook and I have the, obviously the Twitter link uh, that went out as well. So yeah, definitely cool and something yeah. to keep, keep our eye on and maybe it'll be something where we have to figure out some way to, to live broadcast every week when we're uh, when we're recording the podcast. I don't know. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I do think it's kind of interesting, and it's before actually using it. I, I, I was telling myself I probably wouldn't use it mm. because it's not something that I typically do. But after seeing all those people start commenting and giving me hearts and all that stuff, it might be thing I do once in a while, just you know, randomly, just to say hi to my audience and see if they have any questions I can answer very quickly off the cuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely cool. I mean, it, it always uh, it, it lends uh, a certain a different sort of perspective, I should say, when you just up and, and do something like this. Like we talked about either last week or the week before with the iPad, uh, right? Like you feel like you don't need it until you've got it, and you're like, wow, this thing's amazing. So it's kind of that, right. that same sort of uh, feeling. So I guess uh, time to move on to questions, right? You want to uh, lead off the yeah, questions? Yeah, we have
0: a ton of questions this week, and as always, we are giving away a $25 gift card every single week. And in order to redeem the gift card, if you are chosen as one of the best or the best comment in our opinion each week. You have to be listening to the podcast. You have to hear your name and then contact me in order to redeem the prize. We have had a few people who have not redeemed their gift card. So if you are one of those people that have submitted a question in the past, go back and listen to the podcast because you, you, know, you may have won. So... First question is from Gero Julio, I believe that's how you pronounce it. How do you create an email blast using InDesign <coughs> and incorporating video files to be able to, to, be able, what? To be able to be opened in mail applications, both Mac and PC, or do I want to stick with creating it in Dreamweaver or is there a better way to get this done? Um, I do a lot of email blasts at full screen. I'm one of the marketing people over mm-hmm. there. I use MailChimp. 100% use MailChimp. Uh, it's fantastic for creating emails. They have great templates, or you can code your own if you know HTML and CSS. As for video, it's difficult because most email clients do not support native video. Right. So That was
1: what I was going to ask you, you about yeah, as far as yeah. embedding a, a, a video right there in the email. Um, you know...
0: You, you, the, the short answer is you really can't because most email clients don't support JavaScript, which is necessary to get those videos playing. So what a lot of services like MailChimp does or what, what they do is they kind of grab a screenshot of the video. They put a play button over top of it. So it looks like you're going to play it. You click on it and it goes to a page like YouTube <clears throat> or wherever it might be. Right. So I would say if you're trying to incorporate video directly in email in an email, I would say don't and just use an image that links to a video because you're, you're going to try to put JavaScript in an email. It's not going to work. And even in the rare case that it does work, you're going to get maybe like 1% or 2% of people who open the email who actually have that capability in their email client.
1: Yeah, and I mean it totally makes sense. You sort of took the words uh, right out of my mouth. As far as um, yeah, I, every time I'm creating an email template, um, I, I never try to embed video. It's always an image with a play button. You click it, it's linked, and that goes out to you know whether or not it's a Wistia type site or YouTube or Vimeo or wherever. Um, and you would you know just you know click through the link right to the video that way. If you absolutely want to design uh, an email, I would lean toward Dreamweaver. However, like Howard, I use Mailchimp. And I believe Mailchimp is totally free up until like your what first two thousand subscribers or something. Something like um, that. Yeah, so yeah, very
0: few people will have more than two thousand. Right.
1: Exactly. So it's a it's a very uh, very easy to use service um, and really great. So easy to create a very nice, simple, lightweight. Because it's also important that you don't you know graphically load your emails down so they download quickly and they don't just get sent right to the <laughs> spam folder. So yeah, I would say if you're absolutely hooked on creating an email. Use Dreamweaver. Avoid putting video right in the email instead. Link an image. That's sort of the creative workaround that I usually um, use uh, to solve that issue. Uh, But yeah, if you can, roll with MailChimp all the way. So the second question, Barbie from Facebook. Uh, In regards to web design, using Adobe Flash to animate an object, what is the best format? Uh, the best format is not to use Adobe Flash because Adobe. <laughs>
0: That's exactly what I was going to say. Adobe
1: Flash is so passe. <laughs> very 2009. Um, when it comes to animating an object, um, really, what you want to do if you don't, you, you certainly don't want to deliver the object at. at It's kind of a difficult question in in a lot of ways because there's not really a lot of animations on the web right now. A lot of the animations that are on the web are very like HTML5, CSS3 native at this point. JavaScript and jQuery are executing a lot of the animations that you're seeing. Uh, So that's number one. Um, I would look into learning jQuery, which is a library of JavaScript. Very, very effective, very lightweight, pretty easy to pick up. Um, if you're, if you're used to coding an action script, JavaScript is fairly close. I mean, it's, it's not going to feel totally foreign when you pick up and you start trying to learn it. Um, but I mean, if you, if you're absolutely, you can't get out of flash, I would you do what you're doing in flash export it as an MOV and hopefully it's an animation that you're using in like a video application or something maybe you're animating a logo or an intro to a video or something like that um, I would I, I believe there's an export to MOV uh, option That being said, I have not opened Adobe Flash in two and a half years so
0: <laughs> yeah or if you're if you really need animation you can also export it as a well depending on what you need or what you're doing you can export it as an animated gif or GIF, however you pronounce mm-hmm. it. But also, if you're on Creative Cloud, Adobe has some amazing applications now. Edge Animate, Adobe Edge, Adobe Muse, all those yeah. things, which allows you to create animations, really rich HTML animations, web, digital publishing, this, that, and the other thing. And none of it is Flash, which is strange because Adobe has created Flash, but even they're trying to get away from A-Ado- Flash. Because Adobe it's just-
1: inherited Flash.
0: <laughs> that's true they, they Ma- stole mac- it from macromedia, macromedia. okay they yeah, bought them.
1: macromedia invented flash <laughs> um
0: that's that's true yeah. um but yeah adobe has a bunch of applications that you can create great animated graphics that are you know not flash yeah
1: so the next question so i'll howard i'll let you I'll yeah let you, next I'll question the next question or read it maybe i'll need to answer it
0: is from uh ali mohammed yusuf i think i hope I these names are difficult these this week how does color balancing work, and what is the best way to do it, like merging two images or objects?
1: Uh, I think what Ali I'll- is talking about, or Yusef, or whatever you call yourself. I'll call you Yusef for this. Uh, what, I think what he's talking about it has to do with compositing. Um, you know, taking mm-hmm. one image into another. And how do you balance that color from your your one shot to the other, from taking uh, somebody who was photographed over a gray background and dropping them into a beach scene? How do I make it look realistic? Um, and I, I'll, what do you think, Howard? What, 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 what techniques do you yeah, like I mean, to it, use? It's
0: really going to come down to the images that you use. It's going to be different for every single object or every single document. Now, Photoshop does have a feature called Match Color, I believe, which it kind of works. I've done a video on it before and in certain situations it works well. Mm. In certain situations it doesn't work well. Basically, it takes your source image or your source layer and you tell it, I want the colors of this layer to match the background layer or I want the background to match the colors of this layer. But sometimes it just takes the shadows and changes the color or the highlights and changes the color. I much prefer to add... Uh, like a color balance adjustment layer to my images and then kind of trial and error. A lot of it's very rarely. You're going to look at a layer or look at an image and say, I know I need to adjust the reds, the blues and the yellows. So a lot of it for me, at least is a lot of trial and error. Slide the red to the right and see what happens. Slide the blue to the left, (coughs) see what happens. And eventually you'll get everything matching up and looking great. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, uh, there's a little bit more science behind it for me when I'm doing um, <laughs> my, my color-balancing and color-correcting, if you want to call it color-correcting in that way. Uh, I think color-matching is probably a, a, a slightly better term to use. Um, uh, two things that I typically do. Well, unlike you, Howard, there are, there are definitely times where I can tell in an image, you know, all right, either the background, there's too much yellow. You can definitely tell there's a yellow shift. And what do I do? I go into curves and I drag up on the blue channel because blue is the opposite of yellow right? Or if there's too right. much blue, I just drag down on it and I'll, you know, tweak and adjust uh, when it comes to that. Or if you're uncomfortable with curves, uh, there's always a color balance, like you said, uh, adjustment layers, things like that. So I, I, I do, uh, occasionally you can see things like that. A lot of times I feel like you can, but I guess, I suppose it depends on the images you're looking at and working with. Uh, but two things that I like to do. Number one, I like to take the background image, duplicate it up on a new layer and go to the Blur filter, but I choose the Average Blur, which takes the average of all the colors in the scene and gives you one solid color. I'll then apply Mm. that solid color as sort of a soft light overlay only on the object or the person that I'm putting into that scene. And then I'll also go ahead and create a gradient map adjustment layer and I'll sample the shadows in the scene. That I'm that I'm moving this person into, and the highlights in the scene that I'm moving this person into create that gradient map, and then set that to soft light as well. And you know, again, using opacity, you know, adjust the opacity until it looks about right. Those are two things that I like to do, um, but I always have to go in with curves at the end and just perfect and adjust. You know, take a little red out, add a little red, like you said. You're just tweaking and adjusting, seeing what looks just right uh, with regard uh, to that image. So that's that's you know, the long <laughs> short of it, how I do it.
0: Yeah, I think you can definitely tell which one of us edits photos for a living and which (laughs) one... Just creates Photoshop <laughs> tutorials. Uh,
1: all right. Well, that kind of leads into the next question pretty well. Michael Bierman, uh, I believe that's how I, I pronounce his name. A question for the Wee Geeks podcast: What would you prefer—putting a lot of effort into correcting correct lighting while shooting a photo, or being good with dodge and burn? Also, what is your strategy for dodging and burning? Uh, something like one gray layer or a translucent layer with soft light blend mode, uh, blend if, customized pencils, etc. Um, well, I think they're two separate things focusing on your lighting when shooting the photo and dodging and burning you can now yeah. go ahead
0: oh yeah. i was going to say and you can probably speak to this a little bit more i don't know i don't know why i interrupted you but you should always if you can focus on lighting lighting is so key to you know a proper photo a good looking photo the the little the better your lighting the less you're going to have to do in post production yeah. in photoshop But in terms of dodging and burning, you always want to edit non-destructively, and I've done another Photoshop tutorial on this. What I do is I have a gray layer, like you said, I set the blend mode to soft light, and then with a black or white brush, black basically burns it, white basically dodges it. So you're kind of brightening up the highlights, darkening up the shadows, Um, so yeah, that's my strategy for dodge and burn, but I don't do much actual photo shooting, so I'll throw it over to you for the lighting. Yeah, focus. I mean the funny
1: thing about putting effort into correct lighting is the more correctly you light, the less you have to Photoshop, but the more you can Photoshop. The, the more That's correct true. your lighting is, the more you're going to be able to have great dodging and burning. Uh, because the more you dodge and burn correct lighting, the more you emphasize that great lighting and if it's bad lighting, you're just going to be emphasizing that bad lighting further pointing out that it's Bad lighting. So, uh, I I definitely think it starts with putting effort into correct lighting. Now, that being said, you can kind of dodge and burn any photo you want. There's some great natural light photographers that do some amazing dodging and burning work, but it still requires you to, you know, find those shadows, find that great backlight, find that great edge light, find that great accent light, that hair light between the buildings, um, you know, all of that, those kind of things. So, I would say, Put a lot of effort into correct lighting, number one, because correct lighting can get you a great photo. Dodging and burning can't get you a great photo. Dodging and burning can help tweak a good photo to make it a great photo. But bad dodging and burning can also take a great photo and make it a really bad photo. So definitely, yeah,
0: I've seen some pretty ugly results yeah. from people over dodging and are over. Yeah. So
1: definitely focus on lighting and worry about dodging and burning later. As far as strategy for dodge and burn, I use a lot of different things. My go-to is two curves adjustment layers, set the one to multiply, set the other to screen and then use the masks. And then I take the brush tool, set the opacity of the brush tool to 10% and I paint with white on the mask where I want uh, either the multiply, the darkening, the burning to come through or where I want the screening or the brightening to come through. I do also use the one gray layer, and the one gray layer is you create a new layer, fill it with 50% gray, set it to the blend mode of soft light, and then use the dodge and burn tools to dodge and burn on that layer. And then you can also use your opacity slider um, to either back that dodging and burning off or keep it at 100%. So that's uh, long and short uh, what I do with that. Um, Now, Howard, I know we have our questions written out in a certain order, but I'm kind of jumping around in order to try to string them together to make a little more sense. So the next question is from Peter Stacks. And Peter, I I have to give him a little shout out. He's been following me for, it feels like forever, for years and years and years. Um, And he's always tweeting back and forth with me. I believe he lives over in the Netherlands. Um, So the Dutchman asks, are you using Meerkat? And what are your thoughts about it? Will it be the next thing? And then he followed up I believe, a question today, uh, or what is now trending, Periscope. So we sort of touched on a lot of this. So, um, well, we gave you sort of our thoughts. And will it be the next thing? I don't know, Howard. Do you think it'll be the next thing? I would say, sure, why not? Because, you know.
0: I think it'll be the, the subject of the next thing. I think now that Meerkat and Periscope are both out, we're going to see a ton of of these applications, which again, I can't believe it took this long to get a live streaming application on a phone. Nothing major has changed over the last few years, at least I don't Mm -hmm. think so. But I think we're going to see a ton of these. And I think we're going to not just see people like myself talking to our audiences. We're going to see reporters in the field. We're going to see astronauts, hopefully. We're going to see a lot of different people using these things. And I think when Google finally gets their act together and releases a much better, much more sleeker version of Google Glass, we're going to see something like Periscope come to Google yeah. Glass, and that's just going to explode everything. So I think it will be the next thing, and it's going to be the next uh, advancement in live streaming. Do you think
1: Google will work with Periscope since they have their Google Hangouts? That's a good question, How do you think actually? that'll work? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think Google will just take their Hangouts and make like a very mobile-friendly version mm-hmm. of it and just pop it into Google See, Glass. the thing about Google
1: Hangouts and, and just the very name Google Hangout just seems to uh, imply a very social um, – Very interactive kind of thing, whereas something like Meerkat seems to be very almost news desky, at least to me, where I'm broadcasting this thing either that I'm doing or that I'm seeing. You know, like wouldn't it be great to have a periscope of the space shuttle launching if we still had the space shuttle? You know what I mean? Stuff like that where it's, hey, I'm here at this concert. Watch my broadcast of it. Um, And how is that going to work as far as censoring, you know, live broadcasts of shows and things like that? That'll be kind of crazy. So, yeah, I mean, there's just there's a lot of interesting stuff that Meerkat and Periscope are going to bring to the table and bring to the forefront that we haven't had to deal with uh, as of yet. You know, imagine Meerkatting your granddaughter's entire wedding, you know, or Periscoping (laughs) your best friend's bar mitzvah. You know, it's sort of like. You know that that kind of stuff already drives photographers crazy, and now it's just going to be taken to another whole level.
0: It's also kind of creepy. There's also, I guess, a privacy concern if you're walking around with your phone, maybe half hanging out of your pocket in your shirt, and you're just broadcasting the world to potentially thousands of people. Yeah. You know, I can see that kind of going in the wrong direction. Yeah,
1: there could be some issues. So uh, that's sort of our our thoughts again double double dipping on the meerkat periscope issue. Uh next question Samuel Peña asks. Hi. I'm not sure if this question is 100% related but here it goes. Uh, <laughs> but it is kind of tacky. Uh, and it, I think it's kind of a fascinating question. Recently, we've been hearing about all these plane crashes and the difficulty uh, behind finding black boxes or even the planes themselves. Uh, hat tip to the Malaysian what was it m h three seventy or m h three ninety that the Malaysian airline uh-huh. that went down and disappeared? My question is, how could we, and would it be feasible to redesign and replace auxiliary tracking systems and produce uh, more resistant black boxes so they won't get damaged during plane crashes? Thank you so much. Well, Samuel, thank you for your question, first and foremost. uh, I'm going to take this one, or at least initially. Um, I think part of the issue is the lack of kind of internet access. There would have to be sort of some kind of GPS or satellite tracking system, because these planes are always connected to the traffic controllers in one way or another. You know what I mean? All these planes are being followed by radar, at least I believe they are. Um, Now, this sort of uh, dovetails interestingly with an article that I read today about Facebook launching these drones, or there being plans for Facebook to launch these massive, you know, 747-sized drones that are going to be there to beam internet down on areas of the world that don't have internet, and maybe that's what we're missing for something like a a very uh, mobile. A solution for this uh, for instance why can't all of the information that's being recorded by the aircraft be sent immediately to the cloud or immediately to a data bank uh, that the FAA has or whatever you know uh, whatever you know Malaysia's FAA is for instance or Japan's FAA um, or whatever um, why don't we have a solution like that I, don't, I mean there's got to be a reason right um, I mean I'm sure Something like the black box is the most reliable and the most – it was physically there at the time of the accident actually recording the data. There's no risk of a data transmission being interrupted. But I mean you can still keep the black box, right? Why not have some way to beam data back? I I mean allegedly – if we landed on the moon, we were able to satellite beam data back from the moon in the '60s, for crying out loud, from the moon. Um, so why can't we do that um, with you know an airplane that's you know thirty five, forty thousand feet up off the ground? You know. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's definitely an interesting question, Samuel. I don't know enough about how all of that air traffic control uh, stuff works, um, but uh, definitely an interesting, interesting thing uh, to consider for sure.
0: Yeah. My, uh, my internet connection yeah. kind of went out halfway through when you were talking about that. Are you still able to hear me? Uh,
1: no, I I, 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 you dropped out, but I just kept talking until you came back. <laughs> so,
0: oh, good. I'm back. Yeah. So, um, I didn't, I didn't hear most of what you were saying, but I will give my thoughts on this. Yeah. Last I heard and this was several years ago, they are actually developing like an advanced GPS, a much more advanced system. If, if, I'm I'm sure you've been in a plane and I'm sure most of our viewers have been in a plane, but during the descent, the plane kind of drops quickly and then kind of glides a little bit and then it drops quickly and glides. It it continues that until it actually lands. This new GPS system will not only allow planes to travel in more direct routes, but it'll also allow the plane to land without that dropping sensation. It'll kind of just have a nice direct Direct path let's say from 40,000 feet all the way down to Mm -hmm. zero Um, but I am surprised that like you said I think this is what you said I lost half of what you were saying (laughs) but I'm surprised that it doesn't automatically upload or transmit to somewhere even if it's like a centralized maybe the United States launches a satellite Mm or I don't know SpaceX launches a satellite to gather all this information of course people would have conspiracy theories but I'm surprised there's not like a backup like you said, there's you can keep the black box, but something in addition to that that transmits things. The other thing I'm very surprised about, and I don't know if this exists or not, or if it doesn't exist, or maybe they're developing it, <clears throat> um, is some sort of like an automatic takeover system. So people on the ground can take over the plane remotely. It's probably something that would require years and years and years of development and testing. But something like 9-11, people on the ground knew the plane was being taken over by terrorists – there there, need, there needs to be a system, in my opinion, that someone on the ground or a bunch of people on the ground can lock down that plane so nobody on the plane can fly it and they can safely guide it down to safety. But again, these are things that would probably take years and years of development, potentially completely overhauling the cockpit. So especially when you're dealing with aircraft technology, it's not something you can just kind of release one day and Throw it in a plane the next day. It requires a lot of testing,
1: and it's everything's so long distance. The infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, becomes a very real, uh, a very real thing to contend with. I should say. Uh, So, all right, moving on. Great question, Samuel. Uh, Caleb Surface from Twitter asks, "How important is having a creative space to work in, and what goes into building making one?" Howard.
0: Uh, I don't know exactly what goes into building or making one because I haven't... I mean, I have an office um, which has a desk and a few monitors and a few other things, but I have worked in creative spaces. Uh, at Fullscreen, we had a great office that I worked at, and I've seen a lot of great spaces. And from what I've heard from people is that working in a creative space with cool desks and you can rollerblade all over the place, kind of like Google Google's offices, is it just kind of boosts productivity around the office if you're just sitting in a very dark room that's very boring with no pictures on the wall you're not going to really get inspiration you're kind of just going to sit there all day and be bored out of your mind so in my opinion having a creative space is very important if you are a creative person of course if you're an accountant who cares but if you're into art and everything you got to look around and be happy and be in Kind of enjoy what you do. Yeah, I
1: think uh, what would go into building and making one, I think the number one thing, uh, well, kind of 1A and 1B. Number one, if you're working with other people, work with cool people. Um, That's sort of the 1A. Uh, 1B would be uh, work on creating an open and stress-free environment because creativity, in, in my opinion at least, is fostered and spawned from a very free environment, a place where you can just kind of chill out, where there's no stress, there's no pressure, it's open, it's a place you're comfortable with, um, you know, and it's a place you love. Uh, so uh, there certainly is no recipe. To creating a creative space, I do think it's important to have a creative space to work in. That being said, there are amazing pieces of artwork that come out of you know a kid you know with a laptop in his mother's basement kind of uh, setup, but. I mean, you know, look around if you're if you live close to a city or you know even if it's just your corner of the bedroom, you know who is it uh, Ray William Johnson or where that guy was on YouTube, um, you know he had like that wall that that corner that he stood in that was all covered with like you know magazine cutouts or something, you know what I mean? Yep. And like what is that? You know a corner of your bedroom you just glue a bunch of magazine cutouts to, you know I mean just whatever it takes to create kind of a fun little corner where you can kind of turn into it and you know be uh, immersed in some way, shape or form. You your own little world uh doing your own thing not really worrying about anything else um you know yeah i mean i definitely think it's a very important thing um but what goes into building or or making one it's everything from you know pasting magazines onto the wall in your bedroom if that's where you are to building a very open and free environment i mean kelby one uh, scott kelby's company down in florida they just did a like, a, a, I don't know if this is sort of you're alluding to it the rollerblading through the office thing, but they basically strapped a bunch of GoPros to one of the girls that worked at the office and had her rollerblade through the building. And you can just see all the glass, you know, office cubicle type things and, you know, all the different colored walls and just everything like that. Just a very kind of fun and funky looking environment, uh, very open. Though, if you look at it, there's there's space. Um, you know, you don't want to move into a cubicle jungle uh, where you just have your little box and everything's monotonous and and dreary and 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 just there's there's a certain pressure, you know, because everything feels heavy. And what is heavy? Heavy is pressure. You know what I mean? So, I mean that's that's what I would say about that. So yeah, I think it's important. And going into building, making one something that's open, free, but something that you love.
0: Totally. So that'll. Pretty much wrap well, it up. Well, we no, we have, we, have, we have one more question. Have we a have yeah, one very more? important question.
1: Yeah. From Max Hacks. What's I think it's one that we, we had last week and we, we pushed to oh, we we this is. week. Uh, Max Hacks asks I want to know more about both of you. How did Ice Flow Studios and Tutvid come to be and the branding? I'm assuming he wants us to talk about the branding as well. Uh, Howard, I'll let you take this one and then I'll talk a little bit about Tutvid once you uh, wrap up what you have to say about your company.
0: Yeah, so whew, this, is a, this is a big question. Um, when did I start Ice Flow Studio? I think in 2005, I was actually sitting in my grade 12 design class, and I was thinking of names, and I had a pack of ice, some sort of ice dentine ice gum, and then I combined that with something that said Flow, and it was Ice Flow Studios. <laughs> um and I've stuck with that name ever since. I'm trying to slowly push away from the whole Ice Flow Studios brand because I want to be known as more Howard Pinsky, especially in a professional sense. But I think I'm going to be stuck with Ice Flow Studios for quite some time. In terms of branding, I've gone through so many logos over the past few years. If you go to archive.org and you either look up the iceflowstudios.com website or youtube.com slash iceflowstudios, you will see I have probably gone through Oh, gosh, probably at least 12 different logos and 12 different branding and colors. I've settled on sort of like this iceberg type of logo for IceFlowStudios.com. But again, I'm moving towards Howard Pinsky. So I have this Pinsky polygonal type logo now that animates before my videos. But I don't spend too much time on my logos anymore because... I really don't see much of a need for mo- the stuff that mm-hmm. I do. As long as I display my name, Howard Pinsky, I think that that'll get the, the, the message uh, across, the point across. Right. Yeah. The message across. I'm exhausted. I can't even think <laughs> right now. Um, but yeah, there's not much excitement to my story. I started in 2005. I think I launched my YouTube channel in 2006 and I've been through a ton of logos. Maybe I'll make a blog post about it at some point, but yeah, yeah that's about it.
1: Yeah, so that that's uh that's cool. Um I start I start I know I was very very enthusiastic wasn't I? Very very <laughs> enthusiastic. Uh, I'm just thinking about what I'm going to say. Um Tutvid I started in September of 2006. Uh and I started it because at least back at back at that time I couldn't find good tutorials and I wanted to I I didn't even do it thinking that I would make any kind of money doing it, or that it would ever turn into anything big. I just thought maybe I can help some people out, you know, create a few tutorials that you know are going to be made the way that I want tutorials to be made. Because I got so frustrated going through what few tutorials that were online, trying to decipher what they were saying, and I just felt like there were always steps that were missing, and they assumed you knew X, Y, and Z about using you know Photoshop. And I was like, I'm done. I'm going to figure it out. And I'm just going to start recording tutorials. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, in fact, I go back and watch some of those older tutorials. And wow, uh, I had no business teaching anybody else. But I was learning a lot by teaching other people. Um, and I mean, Tutvid, I don't really... I mean, I have... I actually, earlier today, it's funny this question uh, came up. I wasn't thinking about it. Earlier today, I was looking at one of the very first... Uh, logo design ideas for Tutvid and it was like this weird entrance to a bridge uh looking logo um and it's it's awful looking i mean it's just got gradients where gradients shouldn't be and the font is abysmal and a hundred other things that just are not right with it um so you know it, 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 the branding side of it i was i decided that i wanted to create a mascot and build my company around a mascot that was uh, essentially what I decided I wanted to do. And I was just messing around one day and I drew this kind of guy and he had the spiky hair and, and, uh, it was just this orange head. I mean, I love the color orange. Um, so I just was like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to roll with this. And I remember I was still living at my parents' house. I was 15 or 16 at the time. And, uh, my mom walked into my room when I was creating this and she's like, why doesn't he have any glasses? And I said, Oh, because I don't have glasses. Um, And she's like, well, you know, shouldn't he have glasses because, you know, you have a bunch of geeky people that are going to be watching your videos. And I said, well, I don't wear glasses, so he doesn't have glasses. But I ended up putting glasses on him. And he was this very, you know, three – not really three-dimensional. He had a radial gradient and he had a little pair of black glasses and his head was orange. Uh, and it's still what the logo is today except I've flattened the whole thing and it's just the shape now. Just a head with the spiky hair. Um, and he had a name he was called Jake and uh, he's not called Jake anymore but you know, that's what it was. Uh, and then...
0: <laughs> that's why you should always listen to your mom. Yeah,
1: yeah right. Um, and, and then I just started putting videos on YouTube and and it just sort of took off and people started watching the stuff and you know, here I am, what's almost 10 years later. Wow, I'm approaching the ninth anniversary of it. Um, and, it and it still is a thing and and uh, always growing, growing slowly, but uh, growing nonetheless and, and all, always working, trying to make it a little bit better. So yeah, that's how it came to be. and. Um, it's really kind of what got me into the web video space and, and in a certain respect into the photographic stuff that I'm doing now as well um, because there's so many different aspects to creating the content uh, from the writing to the producing to the editing side of it uh, that I never would have had a, a clue as far as what I'm doing. And still when it comes to a lot of the stuff, I don't really know what I'm doing, just sort of flying by the seat of my pants. Um, but… Yeah, that's how that's how it came to be and that's the branding. So there's no real, you know, solid concept behind why the logo is what it is. It just sort of is.
0: Yeah, I think our stories are very similar. The way we started YouTube really not expecting anything. We just uploaded Photoshop tutorials, or in your case, you had Dreamweaver and a bunch of other things, just because we weren't very happy with all the other tutorials that were online. And at the time, we thought our tutorials were fantastic, but looking back, they were absolutely terrible. And speaking of mascots, I actually had a mascot at one point. During my 3D animation phase, I designed a shark with a bandana. Oh boy. And that was my mascot for a while. I don't know why, but it looked cool, so I ran with it. Um, yeah, so that's I, that's. I our I think story. On,
1: on, on that account, we should pick a winner and wrap this thing up. Uh, and we're not really going to top the shark wearing a bandana side of things.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that last question from Max Hacks. Yeah, no,
1: I kind of. Yeah, let's roll with that. Max Hacks, if you hear this podcast, reach out, get in touch with Howard. Uh, if if worse comes to worst, you can just tweet at him at Iceflow Studios. And he will get you your iTunes or Amazon gift card, your choice. Uh, and with that I sure with will. that we'll wrap it up. Excuse me, my throat is starting to give out here over the last like day or so. I've been I've been fighting this like you know throat issue, uh trying to get recording and things done still nonetheless. Um But yeah, make sure you send questions in every week. We're gonna, you know, obviously pick the best question and or the question we like the most and and give a $25 iTunes or Amazon gift card. You can tweet questions to myself at Tutvid, or you can send the questions to Howard at Iceflow Studios. Or you can send the questions to both of us. Uh, Use the hashtag WeGeeks, and we'll see it. Uh, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast. It is on iTunes and SoundCloud, correct?
0: Yep, and it's also on Stitcher. Stitcher. I don't know if people use Stitcher, but it's there. Uh, Also, WeGeeksPodcast.com, which has been made possible thanks to Squarespace, our fantastic Squarespace. Squarespace sponsor. Use the coupon code WEGEEKS to save 10%. Or if you just want to help out and support the show a little bit, head over to patreon.com slash WEGEEKS. And a big thank you to Valdez, our $25 patron, over at patreon.com slash WEGEEKS. And until next time, next Friday, we'll be back with episode number eight. We'll see you next That's
1: time. All right, take it easy, guys.